0: 22, he has some profound things to say, even to the Athenians of their time, starting in verse 22, Luke tells us, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed a- along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they may feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has affixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will do it by a man whom he has appointed and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among those whom also were Dionysius, the era Opagite, and the woman named Damaris. And others with them. The grass withers. The flowers fade. Life comes and goes for all men. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Choices, 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 choices. Everywhere we go. We have to make choices among so many things. We have to make choices. You know, if you go to the grocery store, you have a hundred choices of salad dressing. If we go to the sporting goods store, we have countless choices from sporting wear to fishing lures to the latest shoes. If we go online, the choices multiply even more eBay, Craigslist, shopping online. It's all even making places that are dizzying like shopping malls obsolete. And if you're a kid here, yes, you have many choices. You have countless choices of music or apps or games for your iPhone, your Xbox. It never ends. Everything seems to be a function of choice in our wonderful and crazy time of living that we live in. But here's the thing. Choices affect us not only in how we live the rhythm of life that we do. Choices even affect us in what we believe. In how we live relative to what we believe. In a globalized culture like we live today, more than ever, culture provides so many choices and worldviews and ideas and beliefs. And all of them are right at the end of our fingertips in our computers and on our phones. We are set up to choose our religion and even craft our own religion. Yes, dare I suggest, even choose not to have a religion which is a religion in and of itself. And here is our question for today. In this text, what sets Christianity apart in a world full of religious choices? What makes it different versus all the other religions that are coming our way? Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, uh, New Age, you name it. What makes Christ stand out in the incredible marketplace of religion that we live in today. Well, you know, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul had to deal with this very same question in our text today in Acts chapter 17. Paul, the Apostle, visited the great city of Athens, the great Greek city of Athens. And you can imagine him walking up and down the streets of Athens with real questions about all the gods that existed in that time in the first century. And you got to know, Athens was a truly a world-class city in that time. It was vibrant, with sculptured art. It had extraordinary architecture unmatched in all of the Roman Empire. In fact, you can see on the screen here some of the most well-known aspects of its architecture in the Parthenon and the Acropolis. Indeed, they had so much going on in this town. They had sports. They had stadiums, just like Bank of America Stadium, where they would have their games and their contests. Yes, even the gladiatorial contest, gladiators, all because they valued entertainment In fact, they were known as a place that reproduced lots of dramatists, people who would act in the streets, act out plays, and a host of other things. It was the Hollywood of its time in many ways. And putting that with the gladiatorial games that were going on, the gladiator games, you can hear Maximus in that great movie, Gladiator, Are You Not Entertained? Yet, there was so much more to this place than even the entertainment and the beauty. Paul walked in this place knowing he was in the center of Roman culture. If Rome was power and Corinth was money, Athens was culture in its highest form. But here's the thing. As Paul walked around Athens, he wasn't moved by all that he saw. In fact, look at verse 16 and how he actually responds to this place. Look at verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Jump over to verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You see, Athens was a city not only vibrant with culture, But it was also a great marketplace of religion. It was the South Park Mall of worldviews with temples and gods everywhere. This goes to show that whatever you believe, you believe something. Every person believes in something, has a worldview, has a belief system, even has a set of moral values that you cling to. And in the case of the Athenians... They had a myriad of them, with so many gods that one satirist said of the time that in Athens it was easier to find a god than to find a man. Paul was walking amidst all these gods and all the active worship and different forms that was going on, and it grieved him according to verse 16 it irritated it troubled him much like in the same greek language of the of the septuagint going back to the greek old testament much like god felt when he was encountering the golden calf in the book of exodus and that's because paul believed that there actually aren't many gods there's only one god there's only one god there's only one way to live There's only one real great truth that explains everything as it's supposed to be. There is one distinct moral system that we were intended to live by. In other words, there was only one true and living God versus all of the dead gods that he walked around. So, what did Paul do about it? Did he blog critiques of the gods? Did he write books? Did he go on Fox News and give his hit-and-run diatribe about the religions of the time? No, just like Christ, he walked into the world of the Athenians and he spoke. He spoke with them about Jesus Christ in the most respectful of manner as we see in this text. Verses 17-21 through tell us that he went into the marketplace. The Agora is what they call it, even to this day as it's been rebuilt. The Agora was literally a marketplace that had not only sales of goods, but places where people would talk and gather, kind of like the food court at a mall. Orators would come and discuss what was going on in the time. But Paul, he came with a different message. He came with a kind of TED talk of redeeming grace. A truth about Christianity. One God versus the many gods. This was so profound that he spoke of this one God that there were leaders there among the Stoics and the Epicureans. These were kind of the philosophical leaders of the time. They decided they wanted to bring him into a place called the Areopagus, which was well known in that time and place for being the center place of ideas. It's where everybody around the world would bring their ideas and there would be a court that would listen. And they would judge the goodness, the benefits, or the downsides of said worldviews. It was an extraordinary moment to be invited to this place. Not just anybody gets speak here. It's kind of like speaking at a major university, speaking ideas. And in Paul's case, he speaks the gospel. The Areopagus was what many of you have heard called before Mars Hill, the hill of the war god of the Roman and even Greek Empire. He's speaking to ironically go to war against the gods of that time. Why does this matter to us? Why does this history lesson even mean anything? Well, here's the thing. One God is way more freeing than many gods. When you have many gods in your life, you will find lots of conflicting counsel on how to live. You're pulled different directions like an ox with different yokes. One yoke going one way, another going another. With one god, however, you get one way, one walk, one path, one truth. With the gods of the Roman Empire, you had to actually also show up. With those gods. And you had to offer sacrifices. You had to earn their favor. And please them. Or they might get really mad at you. The Christian God is very different. You get a God who indeed has wrath. But even more he has grace. Grace that comes in the one Christ and Savior. The one Christ and Savior. Who performed Everything that we couldn't do in our lives to live up to God's standard, He did it for us so that we might have life as God intended it. If you ever feel yourself pulled in different directions, if you ever wonder, who am I supposed to serve? Where am I going? What do I do with what this person says? And that person says, you just might be bowing to multiple gods. Whereas when you listen to the kind, tender voice of the one true God, he tells you something profoundly different. Follow me. Let me put it this way. If Jesus were to walk into our individual worlds and to shine a light on what we really believe, what really gets to the heart of what we think is ultimate, what would he find? Would he find himself, the cross? Would he find Many other gods. What would he reveal about what, what we value the most in our lives? Because that is usually what is our God. When I was in my 20s, I was living a very busy life. I might even say a driven life. That's still a struggle for me at times. I found myself struggling with work and marriage and ministry and a mentor of mine took me for a long walk one day, and I told him about the many stresses I had, and he said, "Dean, you know what you need to come to grips with what God you are serving." And I say, "Wait a minute now, I serve the one God G- in Jesus Christ, I serve him." And he said, "You know, the God that you serve is the one that controls your life. You want to know what your God is?" What is it that controls you? And for me, I had to wrestle through what people expected of me, what people think. I had to wrestle through my own expectations of what I wanted out of life versus the good providence of God in its many forms. I'll never forget that. That he said, your God is whatever controls you. That is your ultimate thing in your life. So I ask you, if Jesus were to shine a light on you, what would he find? If Paul were to walk around in your life, what would he see as a God that controls you? Well, the beauty of this is even when God reveals the false gods that we carry around in our lives, he also reveals himself. Paul walks into the Athenians' lives and he gives a radical message of the gospel. There is one God, not many. There is one Savior in Jesus Christ. And the incredible news about this is that He's a living Lord whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, who is kind, gentle, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Now, as He walked around telling them about this, and as He explained it to the Areopagus, this court, they surely had to ask what are the particulars about this God? What should we know about him? What sets him apart in all the marketplace of God's? Because holy cow, we've heard about enough gods in our day. Well, Paul tells them from Scripture five truths about the God of the universe and how he works in our lives, how he is the one true and living God in our text. And he starts out in verse 24. This is what he says. Verse 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it being The Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by men. Here he's illustrating how big God is, that he created the universe, that in as much as he created quasars and pulsars and black holes, as he created so many galaxies and constellations, he is infinitely bigger than all of those, even in creation. God, in other words, was very active in creation as the creator. Now, here's why that's important, because in their day, among the Stoics and Epicureans, they believed that the world was created by accident. It was actually kind of a big surprise. The gods clashed, the world kind of happened, and men, of course, were the most unfortunate fruit of said conflict. But Paul here is saying God created the world intentionally, even very good, with mankind like you and me. And the wonder of that, the beauty of that, is that because he created us with our good in mind as very good created beings, he gives us purpose. Creation implies purpose. Purpose. Everything has meaning. Everything has an end game into it. Second truth he highlights shows up in verse 25. He says this. He says, nor is he, that is God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. You hear that? God gives life without a hook. God gives life without a hook as a gift to us. And here's the freeing thought that goes with what he says. God doesn't need us. (laughs) We need him. But he doesn't need us. For those of you who are theologian types and want to know theology, this is the aseity of God that he's talking about. God's independence. He is independent in his actions. Nothing he does is contingent upon what we think and do. He has a plan that comes from him. And here's why that's beautiful, that he's independent from us and he doesn't get his cues from us or even his counsel from us. The gods of that time, among the the Greeks, they were fickle. They were capricious. Some days they'd be for you, others they're against you. For you, against you. Why? Because of how you perform. Because of how you actually carry out your life. They were in and out, back and forth. That's what the pagan gods were. See, they depended on men to provide what they wanted and needed. But God is very different in that. Because he's independent, what that means is that when he says, I will love you, I will never leave you or forsake you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't stop loving He doesn't stop being committed to us in his grace. Third truth comes in verse 26. He says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determined the allotted periods and boundaries. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the sovereignty of God. God is in control of everything. Now that makes us a little nervous. That God would be in control of everything. And that he's independent at that in his control. That we can't manipulate him. You know what that means, don't you? That means our God is untamable. This God is so big, he can't be tamed by us. He is, as C.S. Lewis did in his Narnia books, Aslan the untamable lion. But you know what I would suggest to you in their time All of the gods of that time were fighting for control in the Greek world. They were constantly in conflict with one another. There was no harmony, no unity among the gods. The world felt random and chaotic in a Greek worldview. Here's the beauty of having a God who's in absolute control there is no randomness, there is purpose. Imagine a world where God is not in control. You know how frightening that would be? That the world is happening at its own pace? That would lead one to even want death. But a God who's in control, a God who has a plan, a God who even has a moral base for how things are to work, that gives us hope. And you know what's even cool about this is in this very text, he says that, He created all men in his sovereignty, in their times and places, in his sovereign hand, from one man. You know why he highlights that? Because the gods of the Greek world were tribal gods, and tribal gods went like this. Our people are better than your people. Paul highlights, on the other hand, this one man that is Adam, a real historic guy, All men came from him to show that all of us have dignity, equal value, despite our creeds, despite our race. God invested in every man and has created you with dignity and value. There is no upper echelon and lower echelon of mankind. There is mankind before God, according to Paul. And that gives you hope. That you're not a second-class person. Everybody in this room is first-class with Jesus. Fourth truth, he tells us, is in verse 27. He says this. He says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Did you notice that last clause? He is not far from each one of us. You know what that means? He's close. He's close. I mean, I've been talking about this big, creative, sovereign God. But here he gives us a little clue that this God comes close. He enters in. He leans into our world. And let me tell you why he does that. Because of what Paul says here about us. That they, us, we should seek God and in hope that we might feel our way toward him and find him. You know what that language of feel your way is? It's groping in the dark. Imagine, if you will, you travel to a hotel or to you're staying in a house that you're not familiar with. It's the middle of the night. You wake up. you got to get a drink of water, but it's pitch black and you can't see. You know what it's like trying to find your way around. You don't know where you are. You're dis, discombobulated. You don't know, where am I? What's happening? How do I get to where I need to go? You can't see. That's the imagery he's talking about here. That's what idolatry does in our lives. That's what sin does to us blinds us so we can't see and though we may reach around for god we can't find him because we can't see him in point of fact we need him to come to us we need him to come to us and there is one who has as the text goes on to tell us it's christ here's the radical thing about christianity amongst all the religions of the world is all the religions of the world will have a a God who enters into the world and does things in the world, but he always does things not out of love and, and beneficence of other people. He does it for his own good to gain something. And Lord knows the gods would never come in the form of a man because what God would lower himself to that level? But here is the gospel. He's close, he's near. And he's talking about Christ entering into our world in flesh and blood 2,000 years ago so you and I could know God personally. He enters into our world in a very real and practical way. This is an extraordinary truth that God would become a man gives further dignity to who we are and that Jesus Christ would even break into our world to reconcile us to God is more profound. There's something else that we should know, though, from this text. The son of God who is fully God, the infinite Lord, came into our world giving, not taking. Again, the gods of that time, they would enter the world, but they would always say, give me something, human being, show me the money. But here's the thing. Jesus shows up and he shows us the money. He shows us the grace. He shows us the kindness. He walked into our worlds and gave himself to us in service and kindness and ultimately gave himself on the cross. This text does not mention the cross. But I agree with the commentators like John Stott, among others, that surely Paul included the cross in his conversations earlier on in chapter 17 in Athens, and probably even in this talk in the Areopagus. Because the cross is crucial to understand the resurrection. And the cross is basically this. Jesus, willingly, as the perfect son of God who never sinned, gave up his life on the cross as a final sacrifice for you and for me, so we, might be forgiven of our sin. He bled on a Roman gibbet. That's a cross. He was asphyxiated as he hung there for six hours one Friday. And he did it for people who abandoned him, who could care less about him, who had even rebelled against him as enemies. That's what he did. There is no God in history who does something like this. None. This is radical. We might even say crazy stuff. Or maybe the truth is we're crazy not to believe it. And that's what the gospel calls us to. Is to believe. And belief isn't just, okay, yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. Belief is not simply, oh, yeah, I, I remember the story of the Bible and how it all goes in. No. Belief is an embracing and owning with your whole being that I need Christ and no one else to save me because I'm tired of trying to make my life work. Because I'm tired of trying all the other gods and they only turn me into a slave. I need the compassion of a Christ who is gentle gentle. With his yoke and kind and forgives me through his blood. That's the kind of Christ Paul was calling them to believe. A faith, in other words. He calls them to a faith that will reorient their world to Jesus. Brings me to the final thing. Fifth thing that Paul says in our text is the final truth about God is that God is a judge. God is a creator. God is sovereign. He gives life. But here's the thing. He also is a judge who's coming back one day. Look at our text here in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the uncomfortable part of Christianity. Christianity believes that one day God will judge the world. That all of history is headed towards an end. A fixed time. There is a story being written right now by God himself which we are a part of. And part of the call is to get on board with God and what He is doing in our world by returning to Him or turning to Him in repentance. He is the God who will judge everything finally and fully when Jesus comes back. Now, here's what's shocking about that in the Greek times, the Greeks didn't even think about the end. They never talked about the end of things or eschatology, if you want the fancy word. Nah, they had no end to the story. And because they had no end, you know what that gave them? That gave them the freedom in their hearts to eat, drink, and be buried for tomorrow you will die. You live, you party, you die, you're done. That's the Greek way. And I don't know about you, but uh, that's not terribly attractive when you consider what Christianity is offering as a very different alternative. Paul says that history will come to a purposeful end when Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he will judge the living and the dead. He will resurrect bodies and judge us fully united beings, body and soul, with new resurrection bodies. He is the one man who will judge us. And he will put everything under his feet. And the world will be put the way it's supposed to be. That is not only a dream in Christianity. That is what we preach and what we call truth. Heaven is more than real in a, in a new movie. Heaven is real because the Bible has been saying it for thousands of years. Jesus is going to bring that into our world. Now here's the big question: What basis? What basis does Paul have to make such a bold claim? Well, the answer is simple. It's the resurrection. We can be assured of the coming judgment because of Jesus' resurrection. It's proof that in as much as God gave him a new body, one day he is the pace setter that will one day show up in the whole world itself and even with us as we spend eternity with God on a new heavens and a new earth. Christ's body is the first fruits from the dead. Now, when Paul jumped, I mean, he had him probably to this point in Athens. And when he jumped to the resurrection... Just an extraordinary thing happened. It? it says in our text that they laughed at him. They mocked him. They mocked him because they didn't want to believe in a resurrection. We have to ask why. What's the matter with the resurrection? Why would they mock him? Well, the first reason is this the Greeks lived in a world where they lived to escape the pain of the material world, they were in such pain in this life with disappointments and hardships, with hurts and relationships, that they wanted to do everything they could to get out of this world and away from the pain. They wanted to mm, surf the net all the time. They wanted that to be their eternal life, if you will, to get away from their physicality. And so why would you want another body? Why would you want a resurrection if there's so much pain in this world? You know what the irony of Christianity is? Is that God and Christ endured the pain. Jesus endured pain like you and I have never known at the cross. And he did it for something more. Some of those who were among those listening to Paul mocked him because they were of more scientific mind. I relate to this because I am an engineer by trade and I love the scientific analysis that goes with repeatable um, results in the empirical method, and as one guy says, and I love the way he says this, there is empirical truth to the resurrection, and it goes like this: Jesus showed up to Mary Magdalene and the women at the at the actual um, grave that 's experiment one. Jesus showed up to Peter. Uh, And the apostles, that's experiment two. He showed up to disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's experiment three. He showed up to 500 people. That's experiment four through 500. How many testimonies from history do you need to know that the resurrection was real? There's a third reason. The whole concept of resurrection, it just seems crazy. I thought this when I was, before I became a Christian. I thought, resurrection? What are you talking about? That's crazy stuff. But as Hank Hanegraaff says, you've got to understand, the resurrection was quite the feat. F-E-A-T. F, Jesus died a fatal death at the hands of professional executioners. He didn't have a fly-by-death or a near-death experience like we hear about in our day. No, he was dead and in the grave three days, as they counted it back in Jewish times. Next is the E. Jesus uh, left an empty tomb. There was never a body found of Christ. When all of his enemies, Jew and Gentile Romans, who were afraid of the rising of all this craziness and Christianity in their empire... If they'd have just found the body and said, look, got his body. You can't believe this hooey. But they never found the body. Then there's the A, the appearances of Christ. Jesus appeared to so many people. And you know, they put him by name in the scriptures. And you know why that is? It was like as if in the first century writers of the gospels and even of Paul's letters, he was saying, hey, you don't believe me? Go to this place and ask them if they saw Jesus. And finally, the apostles gave an, a consistent testimony about a resurrected Christ, even in the face of death. I mean, think about that. If all of us in this room saw Jesus alive and then, or didn't see Jesus alive and just came up with, concocted this crazy idea, what if Jesus came alive and went out from here and told everybody as people pushed back and questioned us intellectually, even with persecution unto death, don't you think somebody would fold? Don't you think somebody would give in? You see, the real reason we have a hard time with the resurrection, just like the Greeks did, is because it's a threat to everything we do in life. It means we are called to believe in a Christ and a God, one God way bigger than we ever thought possible. It means we actually can have hope. And some of us It's really hard to hope. We want to. But we're afraid to because the disappointments sometimes are so deep when we try to hope. But my encouragement to you is this. You're hoping in the wrong thing. You need to hope in the Christ who is big enough to overcome death. The one God who is master over all of history, even putting his son to death for your sin and resurrecting him to overcome death once and for all for us. The resurrection of Jesus is historic proof. There is one God and he's working a plan and we get to be a part of it. So here's the last question. What can we take from all of this? Well, the first thing I would say is we've already mentioned in our, in our time that Paul himself called the Greeks of that time to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. To repent and believe is to reorient your life towards Christ and to follow him in footsteps. Repenting is turning. Turning from going one direction after many gods toward following Christ as the one true Christ. That's what repentance is. You make him your only Lord that you answer to. And I tell you, it's freeing. It's freeing. Second, if you're a Christian here, and many of you are here to celebrate Christ, don't forget the power of the resurrection in your life in the Holy Spirit. You have resurrection power because you died with Christ and have been raised with him, as Romans 6 says. You are a third day Christian. Not a first day. Jesus did die on the cross for your sins, but he's also alive right now. And sending the Spirit to you to minister to you and to give you hope for bigger things in life. Third and finally, remember what the resurrection is a precursor to. Heaven. Heaven. Life after death. It's the question that we all carry around. Whatever worldview or religion we have what happens when i die a lot of us like me in my old days before christ i'd go la 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 don't want to think about it go to a few funerals and you're faced with the reality of what happens when you die but that's the truth that we can hold on to if jesus came back from the dead there is hope after death We have one true and living God. And in the marketplace of dead gods in our world, we have a Christ who is alive indeed. In conclusion, we live in this age where we have choices. Lots of choices. Lots of even religious choices. But I would suggest to you That when you lean on choosing other things and other gods, you're actually settling for less. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Our greatest problem is not that we want more. Our greatest problem is that we settle for less. If we consider the grandeur of Jesus, Lewis says, the incredible uh, promises of rewards that come in heaven that come from his lips, it would seem that our desires are not too strong, but are too weak. We give in too easy for the little things of this life. We are, as Lewis says, half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambitions when genuine, extraordinary joy is offered in Christ. We live in a world with many religious choices. My exhortation to you is choose the Christ who is alive and can come through even after death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have spoken to us in your very word. You've given us promises of eternal life and hope. And now we ask you, Lord, to lead us To have a vision of who you really are. Not the sentimental Christ that so many times we buy into at this time of year. That you're not even the dead Christ who seems like a bygone religion of what people in yesteryear used to believe. But that, Lord, you are the grand and living Christ who created the universe, who created us Who actually gives us life and offers us eternal life in your grace. We want that grace. And we want to know that we're going someplace beyond this world. Heaven. Jesus, reveal yourself as the living Lord. Even as we sing, you are alive in Christ's name.